what is going to solve the world's problems? I'll make it a little bit more specific because the world has a lot of problems, right? Uh, I recently read a book uh, for a book discussion that I'm a part of on the global climate change and how the earth is warming and it's going to lead to level sea, rise, sea level rises and more hurricanes and the cars that you drive pollute the air and cause Katrinas. And that's only going to be more of it. And there's nothing we can do to take away the greenhouse gases that we've already spewed into the atmosphere. The only thing we can do is stop making it as worse as we are making it. So to get a little counter perspective, I thought, well, what, are the other, what does the other side say? Do they say there is no climate change? Do they deny that CO2 emissions are a greenhouse gas? Do they say there's no such thing as any of that? What do they say? And so I hear some of the prominent voices on the other side saying, yes, it's a greenhouse gas, but it's not that bad. It doesn't actually cause hurricanes. There's no way to prove that. What we really need to do is embrace fossil fuels. Use more of it. Because what have fossil fuels brought us? They brought us air conditioning, and they bring us uh, houses and buildings and all these countries that are energy poor. How are we going to get them energy with these stupid windmills? They would say. Let's get them the coal so we can get them the energy they need. They're poor. As I'm looking at these two perspectives, they're both very bleak outlook on the world. On the one hand, you have the earth is just getting hotter and hotter, and the only thing we can do is to not accelerate it so much with the cars that we drive. But it's going to get hot. The other side says, no, 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 it's not getting hot. What we need to do is industrialize everything. Let's knock down the forest and let's take off the mountaintops and pull out all the coal and let's just push industry. To what end? To what end? I sit there in my group and I've got non-Christians that sit around this table and my heart aches for people whose view on life is that. That's it. They just want to pass an earth to their kids that's a little bit better earth than the one that they had. But where do they go? To the dust, man. You're dirt. You're, you're just molecules. And when you lose your last breath, that, that's it. You're just particles that go into the earth and you're, just, you're done. But the Christian worldview is different. It's not that we shouldn't care about, care about climate talks. It's not that we shouldn't care about policies. It's not that we shouldn't care about how good is recycling really. We should have these discussions, but not with that as our end game, because that's not the end. We're told what happens to this world, and then we're told what's on the other side of its destruction, that some will be saved, some will be rescued, there'll be a new earth. And while this may sound like fantasy to some, for the Christian, this is the hope that Christ came to give us. Now we have a choice. We can engage in those debates like we're one of them. No, we need more industry because that's a better world. No, 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 no. Less of that kind of industry. We need to embrace, we need to embrace renewable sources of energy because if we don't, that's going to be a messed up world. We need to step in with a different voice and say, not that we don't care about those things, guys, but there's something bigger than that. What happens when you die? Right? And so the Christian faith from the very beginning 
has not been, has, was never designed to be a private faith, but a shared faith. We share it. And when we go out there and we have discussions about politics, whether it's what do we do about gun laws, every time there's a shooting, there it is again on your Facebook page, around the water cooler at work, people are talking about this. Should we engage in those conversations? Yes, we should engage in those conversations. But what is the ultimate answer? Is the ultimate answer banning guns? Is the ultimate answer training more people to be good with guns? Or is there something that goes beyond policies? That's what we need to get to. That's the Christian mission, is to bring the gospel to bear on those conversations and help them understand how it's relevant to think past policies and procedures. To see that again a little bit, we're going to see that in Mark 6. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 6, second gospel, second book in the New Testament. We already see that Jesus recruited his 12 disciples to be fishers of men. You remember some of them were, were actually fishermen, and he called them and said, now you're going to be fishers of men. You're going to go out there and you're going to catch men um, on my behalf. And then we see Jesus in his ministry. We see a lot of uh, interaction with the disciples, and they're, they're not really hot stuff. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand really what he's trying to get at. They don't understand his mission. They're trying to slow him down. Hey, cut it out. Time out. Why don't you take a break? Um, stop working yourself so hard. They're a little bit sarcastic toward him. People are pushing him on him in the crowd, and he says, well, who touched me? Somebody touched me. Jesus, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? They sound exasperated by Jesus. They're in the storm. They're trying to bail the water, do whatever they can, and Jesus, they're sleeping, and they wake up, don't you care? Don't you care that we're dying? They don't get it. They don't get what Jesus is about. So not a great start. He doesn't have the greatest uh, band of guys at this point. But right here in verse 7, he's already ready to send them out. That is a little bit shocking. They haven't had the training. They're not there yet. They still don't get it. But verse 7 says, And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Send them out to do what? He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if anyone will not receive you, you will... I, uh, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus calls these twelve and he gives them a, a mission. He commissions them to go out in pairs at this point. And he kind of gives them authority over the things that are going to get in their way. These unclean spirits, you're going to confront these. Don't worry about it. I'm giving you authority over them to do what? Verse 12, to proclaim a message of repentance. That's the goal. And so Jesus is using the 12 to further Jesus' own ministry before Jesus even leaves. Right? From the very beginning, discipleship was about making other disciples. From the very beginning, to follow Jesus was to follow him in his mission, not just to follow him in morals, not just to follow him in his, in his um, behavior, but in his ministry toward others. And so they adopt this mission, and amazingly, they are not ready for it, but Jesus sends them. 
I wonder how many of us get hung up waiting till we're ready, waiting till we're trained enough, or waiting till we have enough faith or know enough Bible before we go out there and start sharing it with people. You remember when he took the demons out of that demoniac, the garrison demoniac, and that healed man wanted to jump in the boat and stay with Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 don't come with me. Stay here and proclaim what happened to you. And he went out and proclaimed it. He didn't know, who, he didn't know Jesus 20 minutes ago. And the very first action that Jesus gives him, his mission, is to go and talk to other people just at the level of what he already knows. What do you know about Jesus? Proclaim that. Well, people might have questions. Okay, look it up. Go out there and have the conversations. And so he sends out these, this, these 12, and it's kind of weird. He gives them this, uh, this weird charge in verse 8. Don't take anything with you. You can only take a staff, but you can't take bread. You can't take a bag. You can't take money in your belts. Just wear sandals uh, and, and your tunic. That, that's it. Just go out there with your staff, sandals, and tunic. And just get out there and start talking to people. Um, it does echo Exodus 12. We were in Exodus uh, last year. And if you remember, when they had their first Passover, God told them, hey, when you have this Passover, you're going to be like ready to go. You guys are like preppers, okay? Uh, some of you know what preppers are. You're ready for the EMP blast and all Then you read one minute after and all that. You know, I know you know what I'm talking about, right? So preppers, right? We're ready to go fast. Something's going to happen and you're ready to leave. You got your bug out bag, you got your little flares in it, all that stuff, right? Your little survival knife and your tuna cans, okay? You're ready to run in a flash, in a hurry. And what that was reminding them then at that Passover was, look, and he said, use the same word. Just have a staff, a tunic, your sandals, and eat the Passover with your tunic tucked in like you're ready to run because this is the exodus, right? They're ready to exit. This is about rescue, this is about trusting God. Don't take everything you own. Just be ready to run and trust that God is going to provide for you out there in the wilderness. And so Jesus, I think, is echoing that and saying, you're going to go out there and you're going to trust that you have everything you need to do the ministry of evangelism by trusting in me. Trust in me, not in an extra bag of clothes. Trust in me, not in securing enough money. Don't wait to evangelize. To the, don't wait for that point when you feel like you have enough money. When you have enough backup, when you have enough clothes, when you have enough bags, just go. Be on the run. I think the point is he wanted the disciples to trust him. He wanted them to trust the authority that he's giving him and trust that they will be provided for. And then he says, look, some people will provide for you. Some people will welcome you into their house and stay there. Don't hop around from one house to the next to go, that person's serving steak tonight. I'm going to go over there. Just if somebody welcomes you, just stay in that house and accept their hospitality, whether they give you this much or this much, just live on that. That's okay. But some places are going to completely reject you. They're going to reject you. They're going to tell you to get out. And that's where trust comes in, right? Because not every place is going to accept you. Not every place is going to be okay with your message. And then it gets kind of worse. The stakes rise. In verse 10, he said, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Or verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, and this is a cultural thing, but I think you can get the imagery of what's going on here. When you leave that place that rejected you, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Um, 
if you have a little spat with somebody, you say something and they don't like what you say and you just turn around and go, walk away. I don't think you have to do ancient Near Eastern cultural research to kind of figure out that's not cool, right? Um, it's kind of a communicating to them, fine then, you know, it's this. I'm shaking you off. I'm done with you. But there is another level to it where it was a Jewish custom. If a Jewish person would leave uh, Jewish territory and go into a Gentile area, before coming back into the Jewish territory, some had the custom of kind of shaking out the hem of their uh, cloaks and shaking off the dust of that polluted land to not bring it back into this covenant land. Um, and it spoke of judgment, ultimate judgment against those lands that are not in a relationship with God. So he's echoing that here a little bit, presumably. And he's saying, look, if, if somebody doesn't accept you and they reject you, kind of shake the dust off your feet symbolizing, because in this territory they would know what that symbolized, you are not in a relationship with God, you're a polluted land, and I'm shaking your polluted dust off of my sandals, because you are not right with God. Why would Jesus do that? Is he trying to teach them to be rude? Is he teaching them to just be jerks when they evangelize? I don't think so. I think in that culture, that was communicating a message of condemnation. You are not right with God by rejecting this message. You can't reject this message and be right with God. The only way to be right with God is to embrace this message. So we, they have to trust Jesus, uh, not just because they didn't take any food with them, and not just because they don't even have a bag with belongings in it, and not just because they didn't even take money. They're completely dependent on whatever they encounter out there, whoever they encounter, people's hospitality, but because of the hostility that they'll face. Some will show hospitality, but some will show hostility. And he's basically guaranteeing it. When this happens, react this way. Don't change the message to turn the hostility into hospitality, because that's not what I did in the previous paragraph. I came home, and my own home didn't receive me. So what did I do? Did I change the message so I can stay in the synagogue? Nope. He left the synagogue and went to the villages to keep on teaching. So he's training his disciples the same way. Go out there. Some people are going to open the door and go, oh my goodness, I've been waiting for a message of hope like this. Come on in. And some people are going to go, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And slam the door in your face. In that situation, don't dilute your message so that they open the door. Keep the message the same and communicate to them. Unless they embrace this message as is, they condemn themselves. That's not a favorable position to be in. It's difficult. And it prompts the disciples to have to trust in the mission, trust in the message, trust what Jesus has given them to do. I think for many of us, maybe we delay on evangelism and sharing the message because we're waiting to trust in ourselves. Or maybe we got scared off when a couple of people slam the door in our faces or we just have a sense man if I bring this up it's going to hurt this friendship it's going to change this relationship and I don't know what they're going to do and that's just not a factor here he, he's not saying go out there and make friends some of us are like I'm going to build a friendship for eight years and maybe in eight year nine I'll present the gospel I don't I don't see it <laughs> we, we call it friendship evangelism and I get the point 
The point is to not be a jerk. So many of us are just slap people with the Bible, and we go, do you believe it? No? Well, then dust off the feet. You know, we just, we just want to get to that point. We like to shake the dust part because we're jerks. And that's not what Jesus is intending here. But nor is he intending the, to swing the pendulum completely to the opposite end where we're too chicken to share what we say we believe when we huddle on Sundays. Because it's offensive. It is offensive. But do it this way. Let the message be offensive. You don't be offensive. Let the message itself do its own sifting. Here's what the truth is. They're either going to embrace it or not. But don't present a beautiful truth as an ugly person. Present it like the beautiful feet that come down from the mountain. Speak truth and love. But don't change the message. Don't massage it. Don't switch it. Don't leave certain parts out that you think, ah, that probably would bother them. You're not presenting the gospel if you leave parts out. You don't get to that part where they're a sinner, they're condemned, they're not in a good relationship with God, God has every right to separate them from himself. You're not getting to the bad news, and then you give them the good news, and it doesn't make any sense to them, and you're wondering, how come they don't love this good news? I love it. It's not good news to them because there's no bad news. If I'm not in trouble, why do I need rescue? Here's this rescue that Jesus, is, he's coming to give you this awesome hope. I don't need hope. They need to feel despair first before they can embrace the hope. So the message doesn't change uh, dependent on whether you think someone is going to accept it or not. And that's difficult. But if it's the truth, if it's the truth, it would be unloving to not bring that raw truth to people. If we, say we, if we believe what we say we believe and we withhold that message from people, we're doing them a disservice. Now, why do we withhold it? We withhold it not because we don't really believe it. For many of us, we withhold it just because we're scared. And what Jesus is trying to do is instill trust in them. That's what the whole thing is about the bags and the sandals and all that. He wants them to trust in the message and trust that, yes, some doors will slam in your face. Other doors won't. Just move on to the next one. But then we have this strange passage here, and it took me a while to figure out why this is here. We get the story of the execution of John the Baptist. Now, at first glance, it looks like Mark was just, I had to stick this in somewhere. Might as well stick it in here. This is chapter 6 is as good a place as any other place, and he just rams it in there. But I don't think so. We have this long passage from verse 14 to verse 29 that doesn't talk about really evangelism per se. It doesn't mention the disciples. It doesn't mention the 12. It doesn't say anything about tunics. It doesn't say anything about doors being slammed or going to play. It has nothing to do seemingly with the previous paragraph. right? But then look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Wait a minute, now we're picking up where we left off, right? He sent the disciples out, told them how to go do what they go do, and then verse 30 says, and then they returned to him and told them, they gave him the debrief. So Mark really did jam this in here. It's right in the middle of the storyline. Why does he do that? Well, you've heard me talk about his sandwiches, right? Mark loves sandwiches. I love sandwiches, so I really like Mark. What is a sandwich? Okay, 
when Mark addresses a topic, takes a time out and addresses something else, and then he wraps around and addresses that first topic again. There's your bread, and then there's some meat in the middle. Now, he's a very careful author. He's intelligent. He lays things out strategically, so none of these sandwiches are accidents. He's, he's waving a flag going, I want you to pay attention to this meat in the middle of this sandwich. And in this particular case, the meat in the middle of that sandwich is what happened to John the Baptist. Now, we call him John the Baptist. That doesn't mean he was the first Baptist, uh, like he started the Baptist denomination. It just means he baptized people. He was a baptizer. And here's the story, verse 14. And we'll see in a moment why this is inside this sandwich, the sandwich being about evangelism. King Herod heard of it. What did he hear about? Well, he heard about Jesus and the disciples, apparently, uh, teaching. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So this is kind of uh, already at the point where John has been killed. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, some people would say. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. They think Jesus is John the Baptist, the John Baptist the zombie coming back and doing miraculous works. But others said, verse 15, that he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. They had this uh, understanding of the Old Testament that Elijah would come, and there was this expectation that Elijah would come, and it must be this guy, it must be him. He's come back to do all these miraculous works. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod, now we go flashback. How did John get killed? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Just in case you didn't catch that, he married his brother's wife. Well, that sounds like, you know, a reality TV show. Yeah, it probably was. He married his brother's wife. His brother wasn't dead. Philip was still around. In verse 18, John the Baptist opens his big fat mouth, right? That's his problem. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, John should have just minded his own business, right? Not right. John has the truth, and he owes it to Herod to give him the truth. Well, what if Herod doesn't respond the way I want him to respond? doesn't matter. You have the truth, and your mission is to bring that truth to that person. You don't have to say it like a jerk. But if you don't say anything at all, you're also a different kind of jerk. You have help and you have truth and you don't want to give it to somebody that needs it. Now, even though Herod is a nasty guy, he gives him the message as a messenger. So you would think Herod would be upset by this, but Herodias, the wife, she's ticked. She wants blood. In verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She just wanted him to die. And she has the power to do so. Herod has the power to do so. But she couldn't, for Herod feared John. There's an interesting twist. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He didn't let him free. He just kept him safe in the jail, but no execution. Now get this. When, when Herod heard John the Baptist speak, he was greatly perplexed, Yet he heard him gladly. That's interesting. So here you have a guy, calls himself king. He's not a king. But he's a ruler of this quadrant uh, in Israel. 
And he's got this guy, John the Baptist, who has a message that perplexes him, confuses him, maybe keeps him up at night sometimes. He doesn't quite understand what John the Baptist is talking about, but he knows he's holy. He knows he's righteous. He knows he represents God somehow, and I dare not mess with him. So let me just smile and listen to his sermon today. You know, Let me just kind of, it's a little cringy, but I'll just listen to it because I don't want to cross that line. Now, we have in our minds that there's people out there in the world that hate God, and then there's Christians that love God, and there's people that confuse, and they hate the Christian version of God, and that's it, just kind of black and white. But there's people out there that hear the truth, know it's true, they just don't want it. That's sad, but it's often the case. And with Herod, he knew that John was not to be messed with, so he didn't want to execute him, even though his wife is hemming and hawing about it, nagging him for sure. And he would hear him out, but was very confused by the message. Then verse 21, an opportunity came up. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So these are the top-notch guys that they're at the, the head of all their fields, uh, at the top of all their respective ranks. And they're having this party, uh, birthday party for Herod. Verse 22, this gets kind of weird. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. How many scholars there think it wasn't like, you know, a cutesy dance, but to please the men. They were pleased by it, even though awkwardly it's his wife's daughter. There's another episode for the TV show. I'm sure many would watch. The king said to the girl, something as stupid as, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, some of you parents know you've already made that mistake. Hey, you do me this favor, I'll do whatever you want tomorrow. And then they ask, and you're like, ah, I didn't mean whatever you want. Right? You have to be careful with vows like that. But he's large and in charge. He has a lot of power, and she can ask a lot of things from him. What does she ask? So she goes out, verse 24, and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, what is the, what, she's not thinking about anything else, right? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king, with haste. The daughter isn't like this innocent girl that's like, oh, John the Baptist, that's not what I want. I wanted a pony. She's like, yeah, I like it. And she adds her own flourish of details to it. She comes in immediately with haste to the king and asks, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And you know what? Let's take it to go on a platter. What's Herod's response to that? He was exceedingly sorry. Why? Because he's fearful of John the Baptist. He does not want to execute this man. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. What kind of man would he be in front of all these generals and commanders if he swears this oath and then he doesn't do it because he's scared of this locust-eating furry-looking dude that's stuck in a jail cell. Scared of him? Are you scared of him, Herod? He's not going to admit that. He had this vow, did it in front of everyone. 
And because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Now, when you look at your Bibles and they have what's called rubrics, these little breaks in the passage, many books have this. It's just to give your eye a quick, you're just looking for a certain passage real fast. These rubrics, the bold heading, that's not in the original manuscripts. It's the translator just giving you a heads up about what each chunk is kind of about. What also isn't in the manuscripts are these breaks. There's not a break between 29 and 30. 29 just goes right into 30. And so it plays out very much how I read it. You have this morbid beheading, and then the disciples come back and report to Jesus what they did, picking up where we left off in verse 13. So we know this whole thing about John the Baptist being beheaded has something to do with the previous paragraph and the next verse, which is Jesus sending out his disciples to go teach the gospel and present a message of repentance. And he tells them, some people are going to welcome you and some people are going to slam the door in your face just as they did to me in the previous paragraph. So we see this running theme of the door being slammed in your face because of your message. What extreme might that go to? Some people, yeah, they'll just, your conversations after that might be a little awkward. Some people might not want you at their house anymore. Some people might want to kill you. And you might go, well, in America, that's not really here yet. No, no, I didn't say they will kill you. I said they want to kill you. How long did it take for Herodias to get her opportunity? Are there people out there that wish we could just do away with Christians, that just the policy isn't there yet? Sure, probably. But that's just where we live, in our neck of the woods. But Jesus is almost, Mark is almost presenting here, look, here's what discipleship is about. You take the message to other people. Warning, not everyone's going to buy it. Another warning, some people, it's not that just they don't buy it. They're going to be antagonistic toward you because of it. And when you do that, don't change your message. They need to know they're condemned, they're, that they're condemning themselves. John didn't take it back when he was in jail. He didn't take it back. And it ended in his death. And so the way that John the Baptist's death plays into this message is uh, counting the cost of discipleship. That taking the message out there might cost you, but you don't lower the message or shrink back from proclaiming the message. To proclaim is to be persecuted. To be a herald is to be hated. Some of you may be familiar with the website of Voice of the Martyrs. They have a subpage, I commit to pray.com. I just want to read you a couple of uh, vignettes. The first one, these are prayer requests. And these are real. March 2nd, 2018. Pray for a mother and daughter staying in a Voice of the Martyrs safe house. Sarala and her mother became Christians in early 2017. When Sarala's father learned that they planned to be baptized, he beat them and forbade them from doing so. On the day of the baptism, he locked Sarala in the house though her mother was baptized. 
Um, Afterward, he kicked the two women out of the house and refused to let them return unless they denied Christ. When they did not return, he began searching for them so he could force them to reconvert to Hinduism. Fearing physical abuse, Sarala and her mother took refuge in a VOM safe house. Pray that Sarala's father will come to know Jesus and that Sabina and her mother will continue to grow in faith. And yet number two. Pray for a teenage boy accused of blasphemy. If you listen carefully, the boy, it's not told to us that the boy is a Christian, but it's relevant. Listen. Patras Misa, a 17-year-old boy from Lahore, has been accused of blasphemy in connection with a post on his Facebook page. Patras said someone else posted the content to his Facebook page after he lost his phone. After the post became public knowledge, thousands of Muslims gathered outside the police station and Patras' home demanding his execution. One witness claimed the angry protesters were ready to throw bottles of ignited fuel at the homes of believers, Christian believers. Many Christians fled the town as a result. Patras turned himself in to prevent the situation from becoming more violent. Pray that the charges against him will be dropped and that he will be reunited with his family. Pray for the safety of Christian families in the town and pray that the angry Muslims will come to know the truth of the gospel. Last one. Pray for an evangelist arrested on false charges. Each of these stories have pictures of the real people that they're talking about, and then the Christians standing next to them have the blacked out eyes to protect their identity. Well-known Christian apologist and former Muslim, Abraham ben Moses, was arrested on the evening of December 5th, 2017, after authorities learned of a video in which he questions Muhammad's teachings and shares the gospel with a Muslim taxi driver. The 53-year-old evangelist from Tangerang, Java, was charged with blasphemy, hate speech, and violating Indonesia's information and electronic transactions law. If convicted, he faces up to five years in prison. Pray for his health while he is in prison as he suffers from a blood glucose disorder. Pray that his wife, Ayu, and their young son will be protected and taken care of while he is away from home, and pray that their faith in Christ will remain strong. I just went on the website and pulled the three most recent prayer requests. And when I read a passage like this, and I think about us, I think, would we do that? How faithful would we be to deliver God's message to people who need it if we lived in a place where we would get arrested for it? Your house may get Molotov cocktailed for it. Your son, your daughter might be arrested for it. Guys, we don't even do it because we're afraid of losing some Twitter followers. We're scared. And we come and we gather in our Sunday gatherings and we say we know the truth and we sing these songs like we believe it, that he's going to wrap things up and he's the only hope for this world. And we go out there and we engage in conversations just like everybody else about our favorite politicians and our favorite policies and which policies we think are going to protect the schools the most. What's going to protect the eternity of these kids' lives? What can we do to evangelize these kids? So I know I don't have to convince you. I look at this and I realize I'm in the same boat. I get scared. I've got the education. I've got the training. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to do it. And oftentimes, I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. 
I go to this gym in the Itasca Park District, and for one reason or another, someone stops me in the middle of my routine and takes, forces me to have like a long 10-minute timeout. I'm totally cooling down and waiting for my next rep. And they're just talking about their career, life. And all the while I have in the back of my head, talk to this guy about the gospel. Worst case scenario, he leaves and you can continue your set. (laughs) Why don't I do it? Why don't I do it? I've done it a couple times, but there's still a couple other guys. And it's like the Lord is serving them up to me. They're coming to me, asking me questions. Why don't I do it? I'm a chicken just like everybody else. I get lazy. It's going to interrupt my day. How much longer will it take if I crack this one open? Or maybe he just won't talk to me anymore. I'm waiting for the right moment. I'm waiting for him to say the right thing where I can cut in and go, oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned the cross. He's never going to mention the cross. So I'm in the same boat. I don't feel like I'm an evangelist. I don't, I'm not out there. Don't envision me going out there and every time the jewel person is bagging my groceries, I give them a four-minute version of the gospel. And you know, then in the parking lot, I help an old lady with her bags in the trunk and then I give her the gospel. I wish that were me. But I'd like to start trusting the Lord that yes, some of these conversations might be awkward. Yes, some of them might immediately turn away, but some of them are not going to. Some of them will be hospitable to it, and we won't know that unless we start presenting the message. So we're sitting there and going, wow, we visited this topic a lot recently. Yeah, because Mark does. <laughs> and one of the things that when a preacher goes through a book, passage by passage, we emphasize the things that the passage is emphasizing. We emphasize the things that the author of the biblical book seeks to emphasize. He knows he said it already. He's saying it again because we need to get it, right? And so I preach it again. And shortly, we'll be visiting that theme again. The challenge will be, how do I deliver it in a way that it just doesn't sound like a repeated recording? But if I were up here and just delivered my favorite topics and I just pick and choose whichever passage to support my favorite topics, I probably wouldn't be visiting evangelism that much because it indicts me too. So what do we do from this? I don't think the answer is another evangelism class. I don't think the answer is go get more training. I think the answer is why don't we trust Jesus enough to just do it? Let's just reckon with that. Let's just face that. Let's ask that question. To Say, look, who, who are the people that I know that are in my life that I'm pretty sure they don't know the Lord? And just, just say something. Present something to them. And trust that the Lord is Lord of the harvest. Some doors will close, some will open. Let's rejoice that some will open and let's keep, let's keep on that track of presenting the gospel to people who need it. I want to ask the worship team to come up so we can uh, close our service in a song together. If you're able, please stand and we'll sing.